Maybe you notice coming up the trail, it's different ebbs and flows of the necessary energy quality as, as the trail gets steeper and steeper and then you hit the steps. And there's a different core to connection in the body, different fabric of sensations. You're taking those little steps, going forward, relaxing, going forward, relaxing. It's so one can really get wrapped in that kind of attention. I remember Saira Upandita would might ask me, said, when you came up the steps, you know, what elements were you feeling? What kind of elemental nature? Particularly when I was doing this elemental practice called Datu, the earth, water, fire, air, and that means the awareness, attuning from within the body to textures and flows and currents, streams and heat, cool, warm, vibrating, oscillating, just on that bare experience level, you know, moment of contact, what's happening. How we know, how do we know this? When the Buddha talked about, when he spoke, gave the great discourse on the four domains of mindfulness, body, feeling tone, consciousness, and, and dhammas, phenomena. He spoke of how in, in, in dhammas, you know, one of the features there is, is knowing what hinders common insight. And we've referred to different qualities of mind, attachment, aversion, Sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt, and whatnot. To know them so that we understand them. Not because we want to have aversive thoughts of getting rid of them. To know them so understand them. And simultaneously to know what awakens the mind. What qualities, what factors awaken the mind. So I want to talk tonight on, particularly on the awakening factors called bojanga. Seven Bojanga. One of my favorite Western monks is from Australia. He ordained in the 70s. Now he lives in the north part of Sydney and does a lot of hospice work and service. It's one of his primary Dhamma expressions in daily life. I really enjoyed him telling me how he learned meditation. He, he met his teacher so on, on the Andaman coast north of Phuket when he was just a traveling hippie in the 70s. And the way he met him was resistantly. He had a Thai friend who kept saying, I want you to meet my Ajahn. So the word like Saidao in Burmese meaning a respected teacher. In Thai, it's Ajahn, respected teacher. 
and my and my friend, his name now is Teja Damo, and he's been a monk for so many decades, I forget his his other name. <laughs> he said, sure, I'd be happy to meet your Ajahn, you know, maybe tomorrow. And then a few days would go by in the same thing, invitation, you should come and meet my, my Ajahn. And it's a beautiful Wat. In those days, uh, you know, Phuket was nothing like it is today, which is like a Waikiki, you know. It's very rural. And north of Phuket even more. So, sure, he'd say, and then he wouldn't show up. So one day his friend uh, got him to agree to uh, meet him outside his hostel at, at a certain time, like 8 o'clock. And so my friend got up at 7 to kind of sneak out and go somewhere else. Uh, but his Thai friend was there waiting for him, saying, <laughs> oh, you're early, let's go. And they went, and it was one of those, um, you know, water drop connections, as we say in Burma, Yezed uh, Sonde, convergence of two streams meeting again in this life from having done good things together in previous lives. It was an immediate connection that way. And it wasn't long on long after that Tejadamo ordained. And he's been a monk ever since. So his first year there was a, a lot about learning the ways of being in in the in the ordained Sangha, living in a monastery, you know, wearing the robes, learning what the various rules are, and, and the culture and the custom and so forth. Had a lot to learn. And then after about a year or so, you know, he he had this kind of deep longing. And he'd heard of this teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a teacher I had the fortune of meeting before he died, uh, Wat Swan Mok in Suratani. And as a monk, I stayed there for a few months, one year in the early 80s. So Tejadamo knew that his Ajahn had family in near Swan Mok in Suratani. So he started to suggest to his Ajahn, you know, I, th- I would like to go and visit your family someday and maybe I can take some some gifts from them and give them your good wishes. And the Ajahn would say nothing and a week or two would pass, Tejadamo again suggest that he go and visit his Ajahn's family in Suratani. And the third time, his Ajahn said, Tejadamo, what do you want? And Tejadamo said, well, I hear there's a, a Wat there, Wat Swan Mok, and that there's this great meditation master, and I want to learn meditation. And so his Ajahn said, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> Your year has gone by, 14 months or 15 months. Why didn't you tell me you want to learn meditation? Meet me tonight at the Dhamma Hall. Here's the keys. And it was the old part of the monastery, old teak building, Dhamma Hall. Tejadamo was there at the appropriate time at six. Rajan was there. They went in, sat for two hours. Not a word was spoken. Same thing the next night. And for a year, 
every night they met. And the instructions were nothing. <laughs> and Teja almost said, you know, after a while you just you just grow weary of <laughs> what the mind does, the boredom, the anger, the frustration, the longing, the restlessness, the worry, the attachments, the fear. I mean I mean you know, there's a, a feast, there's a plate of offerings every time you go and sit. And there was nothing to do after a while but see them, but notice them. And, and the mind's own heart, the mind heart's own nature, its restorative nature to be at peace, to know itself, asserted itself. So when, when the Buddha taught, these four domains. He wasn't trying to get us to see something that wasn't there. He wasn't trying to get us uh, to see anything that he suggested that we see. He was simply teaching us to see. He was teaching us these seven awakening factors, mindfulness, investigation of nature, dhamma, joy, or, or energy first, joyous interest, calm, concentration, equanimity. And as it turns out, to learn about the body, to learn about feeling tone, to learn about the mind, consciousness, to learn about what hinders practice and what awakens the nature of the mind and understanding is already there. The fabric of the seven factors the cord of connection of each one is already there. It's already within us. Everything he named and, and the domains he put out for us to help us, you know, as instructions, should we need them, were things already there. There is no body, but there is hardness and pressure and graininess and silkiness. There is fluidity and cohesion and heat and vibration and movement. There is no hand and arm and leg and head, but there are all those sensations. And there really is no reactivity to what those sensations do, except when we don't see clearly. When we see clearly, it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. The reactivity of attachment or aversion is extra. It's a visitor. It's not already there. The elemental nature is already there. The pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is already there. The knowing mind, as Tejadamo found out by himself, is already there. And sooner or later, whether we had instruction or teaching or not, it's going to know itself. The hindrances are already there. That we usually come up to immediately, the first few days, sloth and torpor, or that drifty, dreamy, phantasmagoric mind, you know, off in space or off anywhere else but in the present. Anxiety, restlessness, doubt, fear, longing, aversion. We get to know those quite quickly. And with a little bit of generation of this pre-verbal awareness, sati, they, they soon become not so problematic 
they soon become just like the body, elemental nature. There's a cause and a condition for attachment to arise in the mind. When there's pleasant experience, there's a cause, there's a condition for aversion, ill will, irritation to to arise in the mind. Causes and conditions when we don't see or recognize or feel unpleasant experience, just the as-it-is nature. So we start getting interested, you know, what these forces of hindering, of hindering the stillness of mind and inside awareness from coming out more, you know what they are, free of identifying with them. What is just a moment of fear feel like without my story wrapped around it? That mental proliferation, that habit of embellishment after that moment of contact, you know, when the flame goes off, the flame of ignition, felt body sense, seeing, hearing, sensing, and so forth. What happens? So it's the nature of mindfulness called satipatthana, which means a, a powerful, clear, and present time awareness. Present time awareness. We can't be mindful of the, the fear that just passed away, of the heat that just dissolved a moment ago. You can only think about it or reflect about it. We can't be mindful of, of the next breath that hasn't yet arisen, of the next fantasy in our mind that takes us off on a long journey. We can't be mindful that we can think about it, we can reflect on it, can imagine it, but can't be mindful of it. We can only be mindful of present time experience, exactly what's appearing in the moment. We can only be mindful, and we can only know what's the difference between conceptual reality or experience and and what's really real, you know, what has texture to it, what's a felt experience and not seen through thought, imagination, memory, projection, our stories. And that's the, that's the nature of this, of sati, to kind of clear the way, open, the, open wide. It's an awareness that opens wide the mind and heart. And it actually has a, very incredible, transformative effect on our perception. The other night, talking about how, you know, that moment of contact, when the striker receptor ignition, like when we lit those matches, the striker being the sense imprint of color or sound or sensation and scent and taste, thought, and the receptor being the body and the other senses. And in that moment of contact is such and such a consciousness, seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, thinking consciousness, and so forth. But generally, because of, of misperception, you know, kind of not having been given the opportunity to sit still like Tejadamo for two hours in silence, you know, we were fed all this information about how we're supposed to think and, and relate to ourselves, so it affected our perception, and in that 
initial immediate moment of contact, it may be just a mini, a nano moment there where we just where there's just pure seeing and there's not a seer and an object of sight that we identify with and the story forms, the concepts and constructs. And then immediately the like and dislike and then the attachment or aversion and so forth. What mindfulness does is it re-restores like uh, this uh, innocent perception, perceptual process that's just receiving. It makes, it makes of mindfulness this, this perception that no longer proliferates until what we think about experience starts to just be this receptive awareness, this receptive heart to things just as they are, the immediate nature. That's how we really start to know the body. That's how we know feeling, tone, is in every moment. Sometimes we just gaze out over the ocean, you know, and coming out of the hall, maybe the moon is rising. Just relax and make of that visual experience a container for mindfulness. Fill the, the whole hor- horizon of color, image, light, shadow with mindfulness. And have that sense of receiving the immediacy. Yeah, there'll be thoughts about how beautiful the moon is, but then we'll notice that and just feel the sensations of beauty. Beauty has a sensation. We can feel it in the body. It's real. It's true. The thoughts about it are very different than the immediate sense of it, than the, the receiving of it. The light, the soft, silver, gold color... It can immediately take us into a dreamy place, or but we might notice the calming effect. Calm is very real. It has a soothing effect in the mind. It has a sensation in the body. You can feel calm in the body. It's true. It exists. We might feel a sudden balancing of energy, you know, from maybe being a little overexcited or agitated or a drop and feel a lull, you know, from the Dhamma talk out there opening to the light. Suddenly we're aware of these moments of in the polyviria energy or literally courageous energy. Just the right striking of effort in each moment. Like when we walk up the path just the energy needed to take that little step as the trail steepens. Just the energy needed as we step up onto the steps and then relax again. It's like playing music. It's only the energy required to make notes sound a certain way and to coordinate with each other. That's virya. So looking out on the ocean... And then feeling, you know, this receptive, open awareness, this perception that's not jumping into proliferating mind, or we catch it, and it stops, and then again we feel this open, receptive awareness 
That's the nature of sati, satipatthana. It's clear and present, pre-verbal awareness. It's the first of the seven bojangas. It awakens and connects and sustains all the other ones until they're this, like a single cord or a fabric that work together. They're already there, or they they wouldn't be developed as a natural, as natural mind, which is the aim of meditation, to restore the natural free flow nature of of the heart-mind. So they're revealed, and they're particularly revealed as the hindrances lighten up, you know, as our awareness of the hindrances stop identifying and making stories out of them. Just see, attachment, aversion, actually are they're sometimes referred to in the text as a bundle, you know, a package, kind of come together. I want this, I don't want that. You know, we're feeling discomfort in the body. It's aversion to that. But then in the next very next moment, is wanting to get rid of it. So they're usually very close together. Attachment, aversion, the bundle, they're intertwined. You can't really separate them. So it gets interesting when we kind of see, well, there's the bundle revisiting. You know, let them in for a while. Get to know them so they don't sneak up the next time. That aversive mind uh, can, can overwhelm and take us for take us off for quite some time. But the attunement nature of mindfulness starts to catch the bundle sometimes, just as it's arising, maybe in the middle. But less and less are we often long fantasies that that are fed by the attachment or aversion in other states. The, um, the second bojanga is called the investigation of dhammas. And here again, dhamma as nature, as phenomena, as the moment-to-moment events. Dhamma vichaya is this immediate, mindful, and receptive investigative awareness of what's happening. See, immediately through any, the body or mind, the six sense doors, knowing, knowing, knowing sensation, knowing feeling tone, knowing, knowing, and knowing all the dhammas as they arise. Particularly, attunement to unique and universal nature. What's a unique nature? Pressure. Pressure is different than heat. And that's different than fluidity. And that's different than this whole body vibration that sometimes we can feel. And that's different than a pinprick And that's different than the stickiness of sweat. 
Those are unique natures. Fear has a certain function. It disassociates, it disengages, it darkens consciousness, the feeling of disconnection. Many aversive states have that same nature, but, um, but each one has its own flavor. You know, so, and fear also has a, this function of usually focusing on a particular object of threat or perception of threat. And we can even, you know, often before we understand the transcendent nature of emotions, we, re- we see emotions as threats. You know, we immediately, as Michelle was saying last night, we objectify our experience. So an emotion becomes something out there or down there, or it becomes a threat and fears in the mind. And and because of not seeing that unique nature, recognizing the unique nature, that fear is just momentary. And it is its nature to feel like experience is somehow threatening or intimidating. When we understand that, it's a huge breakthrough. You're never going to experience fear in the same way. It starts to become just a momentary dhamma, the, the fear dhamma, that has this effect of dissociation or darkening or disconnection. Metta, on the other hand, is just the opposite. A metta moment or a flow of metta moments light, lights up the world. Uh, re-establishes this sense of connection to within ourselves, within a self that's been fractured, or shattered, fragmented. The re-cohering of all those myriad fractures and connects us to those around us and the world around us. Metta is about connection and has the taste, the flavor of connection. Even though it's called universal love, it has that element to it too. It's fundamentally just feeling friendly or affectionate toward ourselves, our own bodies and feelings and mental states and others and the immediate surround. That's a unique nature. This is when we investigate moment-to-moment experience, we come to know each of these unique natures, mental natures, bodily natures, you know, elemental natures. And what do I mean by universal nature? That's that investigative awareness that sees how all these unique dhammas are constantly appearing and vanishing. That fear isn't this unbroken, cement-like wall, impenetrable, you know, and long-lasting, that in fact it's, it's so incredibly momentary that by relaxing behind it, by having the intention to understand it, this investigative awareness, there suddenly can be space around a moment of fear. And there can be space around a moment of metta so that we don't cling to it. That allows more metta to come up. The opposite effect, just the space around a moment of fear, is a condition for less fear to arise. It's a condition for fear, the conditions for fear to begin to disappear. 
just as this investigative awareness that knows the unique Dhamma of metta and sees its changing nature already understands that metta is going to pass like pleasant feelings. There's no attachment. The metta, that's a condition for the metta to re-arise and there be to live. And that's what we mean when we talk about abiding in the field of metta. Or in this case, now that we're doing vipassana, abiding in a field of awareness that's receiving the experience as it is. It's really powerful. This investigation, the Dhamma Vichaya, the second Bojanga. When I was living at Swan Mok for three months, this place in Thailand where Dhamma, Teja Dhamma wanted to go learn to meditate, every morning I'd walk to for join the other monks for for the alms food. And then we walk to nearby villages and receive the food. I had a cottage to myself in the forest. And this one morning, I saw in front of me uh, a huge log. You know, I thought, well, maybe the tree had fallen the night before, but I didn't hear it, you know. And, and it was so big, uh, kind of strange, that it would be laying across the my little trail that led to the um, the feeding place for the monks. Then as I got closer, the log seemed to be undulating. So that moment of visual contact immediately proliferated into what? You know, python. <laughs> they live in Thailand. And I said, well, you know, so it's both excitement and fear and all these different mental states and you know, I'm one of those who likes to get closer <laughs> and take my chances. See all those little, you know, colors and see how it moves and maybe see its fangs or whatever. <laughs> as close as I can get, you know. So I got, so I was getting closer and closer. I thought, man, that's a long python. Because it was undulating and undulating, which gave the sense that it was moving across the road. It never seemed to stop. And you know, when I thought, gee, that's already five meters, you know, 20, 20, 15, 16 feet. This is really weird. Maybe it's molting or something. Maybe it's not traveling, but just changing. So, of course, I got closer. And as I got closer, my perception became pure. And I saw that it was just a huge tribe of marching ants. You know, as wide as a snake. And just little individual, teeny little ants following each other. Like little moments, little unique dhammas. Little ant dhamma, and then followed by another ant dhamma, followed by another one. And they're all changing, they're all in motion, they're all transforming, they're all, you know... That's like dhammacharya. That's what happens when we start to see the elemental nature of the body as it is. We start to see what vedana really is. As Michelle was talking about last night, a pleasant feeling in its purity is just a pleasant feeling. It's not about wanting an attachment and uh, clinging. And unpleasant is just that. It's just a lot of heat or a lot of pressure in the body or the equivalent in the mental state. It's not about a reaction 
of ill will, aversion, denial, <coughs> rejection, pushing away, disconnection, all those things that can happen. It's just unpleasant. The next little part in this cord of connection or in this fabric of the Bojangas energy. One of my favorite sort of energy stories I had once heard uh, that in the sometime in the late nineties, the famous concert violinist Isak Perlman uh, was was the lead was a lead part of a symphony in New York City at the Lincoln Hall and Lincoln Center. And as many people who know of Isaac Perlman are aware of, he had polio as a child, so he has braces on both legs and walks with two arm crutches. And it's like this ritual, this sort of majestic but painful ritual as he comes across the stage and sits down, sets down his hand crutches, and, um, puts one leg kind of behind and moves the other one in front, and then picks up you know, one of his amazing um, Stradivarius or whatever violins, gets set, gets centered, and with a, a look signals the conductor. So all this went as many people had witnessed before. And then it's said that just a few notes into it after he signaled the conductor, and he, he began the symphony. It was like a shot rang out in the hall. And people also knew immediately what would happen to these the seasoned symphony people. They knew the string had broken. And many had perhaps a similar thoughts. Well, now Isak Perlman will have to you know, put his violin down and, and um, get his legs set, pick up his crutches, and w- walk back out behind the stage to get another violin or to restring his, his favorite one. And it was like eternal moment of all that sort of stunned silence and ahs and oohs and well, what's going to happen next? But it's not what happened. Once more, Isaac Roman signaled to the conductor and he kept playing. And, and he just used his fingers and his skill, his energy, his courage to kind of make all the missing notes. You know, by, by how his fingers pressed on the frets, on the strings. He made up for all the missing notes of the broken string. And, and it said that he, he played more beautifully, more extraordinary than ever before, ending with this oppositely stunned crowd, you know, just were speechless at the end of the end of that piece, end of that concert. And a standing ovation went on so long that, you know, finally he held up his bow and um, the silence came and he wiped his brow and he said into the speaker, he said, sometimes it's the artist's task to to make more music with whatever energy is left. 
You know, he understood. He didn't know what, he had no idea what was going to happen, and of course, no plan on what to do if it happened. He had never been in that position before. But he had trained for a lifetime to be this, have this mastery, this extraordinary musical mastery. So he still heard the sounds in his mind, and his body knew how to make them. His fingers knew how to make them. And sometimes it's our tasks as meditators, as people in the world, to make all the music we can, and then to keep making it with whatever we have left. So courageous energy is just another momentary dhamma. In, in practice, it's just the effort necessary to connect to that moment's experience. The stream of sensations we might feel in the breath, our tuning to sound vibration, trying to discern, using the right amount of energy to discern between the images and associations and thoughts about the source of the sound and the actual visceral reality, the immediacy of sound vibration, because that's what's real. The thought of the bird or the wind is just a thought. Experiencing the sound vibrations, and sometimes we know sound vibrations more than just through the ear. You feel them through the whole body. It's as if every cell in the body can hear some sounds. Last week with all that wild wind, it's like that. With a sudden, you know, in a case where there's you know, a lot of music, you can feel it in the body. It's as if even the eyes can see sound sometimes. It's like a convergence of the senses. That's f- that ability of mindfulness to stay moment to moment with what happens at contact when sense imprint, like sound vibration, and sense receptor, like ear, door, ear sensitivity, and the simultaneous ignition of hearing consciousness arise. To just keep resting there. That's the kind of energy attunement walking up the trail. All the little shifts you know, in being in the moment, not getting to the Dhamma hall for a Dhamma talk. But what's happening just in, as, you, as we lift our leg and then place it down and you feel something different in the arch of the foot when the trail gets steeper, or that you know, cord of connection in the thigh and to the hip as we go up the steps, feeling it from there, from within there, and just the energy necessary to feel it then and there, not to proliferate out. Lift up energy when energy is low, chill it out when it's too high. And as, as we get to have a sense that's the nature, nature. That's the nature of six of the bojangas, to balance each other. Investigation, energy, and joy lift our energy up when we feel tired and sleepy and lazy and lethargic and weary, disenchanted, and in calm concentration, equanimity, our soothers chill us out, tranquilize us. You know, when we're tight, anxious restless, 
That's too much. Uh, every moment of mindfulness is working these like a concert, like music, bringing them into balance. So the energy and concentration, you know, are, are, have the right marriage. Piti is mentioned as the next unique dhamma in this connective cord or fabric of the bojangas. Piti starts maybe as a growing interest, as Michelle was talking last night, thinking and having an interest in anything rearranges the relationship from a more skewed perception, you know, that proliferates out of noticing grief into our story around it, to just feeling the felt sense of grief as a sensation in the body and as a and as a mental quality, you know, with a certain scent, a certain flavor, a certain combination of longing and sadness, wishful thoughts. In the moment that we can just capture grief through investigative awareness and know it free from its story, it can, it can transform into gratitude. You know, it elevates rather than keeps us somehow caught and entangled or you know, anchored to some thought of the past, it can change. And it's like Carl Jung's idea of the transcendent nature, function of emotions, how they change by the way we relate to them. So the way mindfulness can relate to it. So PT is that initial interest that might turn into kind of a rapt interest, we've never taken the same breath twice. It's never the same play of sensations in the abdomen. Even in one in-breath, as the abdomen rises, sometimes it feels like a, a staccato of sensations, or little cycles, circles. You know, it's as if take a little bead of pressure and it seems to appear and disappear and appear and disappear or change into a vibration or change into a, a little streaming energy. Just this stepped up awareness of the building pressure, tension, tightness of the abdomen with an in-breath. The whole world, whole universe of sensations. And interest turns into rapture when we get quiet. It becomes fascinating. The breath disappears. Breath is just a concept. Just like the body disappears when we're just feeling elemental nature. And, and even the sense of whether it's an in-breath or out-breath or rising and falling falls away. Form can completely disappear. And it's just this play of sensations, whatever they're doing. The staccato, or the tensing, or the pulling, or the pushing, or the uh, the multiplicity of energy, vibration. That rapture lifts the energy, it lifts the body, and lifts the mind, and it keenly attunes. Sometimes it's ecstatic, really blissful. Sometimes it's this, this simple 
joy in moment to moment, seeing as it is, the as it is nature of things. There's something so liberating about touching what's true. Even when there's discomfort, even when it's difficult, it's just true. And so joy doesn't mean the absence of unpleasantness. It means interest and connection with what's happening. I, I often think of my mom, um, how she enjoyed, I didn't understand at first. We had this, uh, this cactus vine, it's called a cereus, a night-blooming cereus, bloomed once a year during the full moon of August. And it, and it grew in the front of, the, of my childhood home uh, on the beach, the water's edge. And my mom was always watching as the bloom started early in August, you know, and she knew as the full moon approached that the, the blooms were getting more ripe, like our garden is here in Hollyhock. Um, and she always knew the night that it was going to happen. And she'd try and get us down to watch with her. Uh, and what I always wondered in, in, the, in the beginning was, The depth and, and purity, innocence, in which she just took such joy in something that was so fleeting. Because the the, Siri, the night blowing serious bloom opened during the full moon and closed as the moon set, and never opened again. And the bloom would just fall off some days or a week later. And it was like. This is this wondrous thing for her, and there's no regret, no sadness. You know, there is the beauty. There's the shining moon. There's the blossom. There's its opening brilliance, that subtle scent, and then it's gone. And she was so totally okay with that. In later years, you know, meditating in Burma, that would come to me. I'd remember that. You know, Michelle would remind me. It was one of my mom's favorite things. That's like, that's piti. It's a profound yet simple, rapt interest in moment-to-moment experience, what's true, what's real. So there are many levels of piti, and don't have time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.